Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the province and territory. On this episode, you'll hear my conversation with an author whose books have won and been finalists for many BC and Yukon Book Prizes, including A Year on the Wild Side and The Real Thing. If you're not sure who I'm talking about, here she is to introduce herself. So my name is Bryony Penn. I live on Salt Spring Island. I'm a fifth generation Islander settler and I live on uh, Wasanich territory and I am a, a writer, a geographer, um, some call me an activist, I call myself a citizen, and I, um, I taught at the University of Victoria Environmental Studies for over 20 years, and I'm also a, uh, an artist. Bryony Penn's book, Following the Good River, The Life and Times of Wahed, is a finalist for the 2021 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Bryony collaborated on the book with Wahed, or Cecil Paul. Bryony starts this episode with a reading from the book. And at the end of this episode, you'll also hear a little bit of Wahed talking and telling one of his stories. Okay, here's Bryony setting up the reading from Following the Good River. Okay, um, the story I picked is called LNG, Is It Still Damage? Uh, this is one of the stories that Cecil shared with me about a pretty relevant contemporary issue to almost all British Columbians, which is this huge LNG project up in Kitimat, which is right in his territory. And a lot of people probably have heard different stories coming out of the press, but this is really a personal story that really, I think, highlights some of these internal issues that are going on in the North that we don't often hear about because they become very internal and very personal and very challenging for communities to deal with. Um, and it forms part of the person of who he is, which was a real activist throughout his entire life. So this is a very contemporary issue, though he's been, he was fighting issues all his life. Um, liquefied nat natural gas. This is Cecil's voice. Two pipelines are gonna come down to my country. I go to the meeting as I was concerned about the pipeline. I heard the money talk first and then the environmentalists. The hereditary chief Himas asked me, Kunkwatla, did you hear what they said? What is your vision of what you heard? When I first heard about it, I tried to talk to a friend who is a really good scientist. I was very uncertain about LNG, but in my heart, I knew. I phoned David Suzuki. I said, David, explain to me a little bit. What is the difference between oil and gas? On the left hand is oil. And I'm afraid of that. And I'm 100% against the oil pipeline. On the right hand is the natural gas. And in my crazy mind, it tells me it will evaporate into the air and the other will sink to the ground in the bottom of the ocean. How do I stand? David says, there is less damage with natural gas, but phone me back in 20 years. So I think less damage less damage they are buying us out if we allow these industries to come in the garden is destroyed all for that mighty dollar 
and we are so blinded by the dollar. How do we tell our people to think about our garden? A lot of them opposed my way of thinking, and that was my journey. My little sister Louisa and Murray Smith, they are fighting the LNG at Lilu Island with the other hereditary chief support Simpson. Murray said at a meeting with the federal government, Chairperson, what is this meeting about? It's supposed to be us telling the government our stories in our country, and it is reversed. Government thinks they're only Indians. They don't know what the hell they're saying. My little sister calmed things down. I know you're working for the mighty dollar, but I want you to hear our voice. We don't want to take away your bread and butter, but look at what you're going to take away. Our whole world. Kitimat, July 16th. 2016. Cecil and I are on our way to the old Eurocan mill. We see the only trace of Eurocan left is the road sign saying Eurocan way. West Fraser, the previous corporate occupant, seemed positively saintly in comparison to the latest tenant to rent Wahed's territory for one dollar. The new branding is Orwellian. The sign tells us that we are approaching Shell's LNG Canada Opportunity for British Columbia, energy for the world. As we drive along Eurocan Way, Burma Shave type signs lead us inexorably closer to the gates. Comply, intervene, respect. Unless you've worked for the Royal Dutch Shell Company around the world, it might not be obvious that these are the three golden life-saving rules. According to the Vice President for Safety at Shell, Mr. Van Dyke, who oversees these rules, Quote, when we look back in Shell, we found that over the years, quite a number of fatal accidents which were related to people not sticking to these rules, unquote. I wonder aloud if Mr. Van Dyke is referring to those 60 people resisting oil development in the Niger Delta who didn't stick to Shell's rules and died at the hands of militia gangs financed by another department of his company. We arrive at a 25 centimeter barb wire fence encircling the complex and fluorescent stripes swaddling everything including a young security guard he goes to Cecil's open window can I help you he asks politely Cecil replies I'd just like to show my daughter here where I used to work for 30 years the guard crouches down to hear Cecil better then looks inside the car at me looks at Cecil again then slowly pulls up to his full height as he tells us he'll have to talk to his supervisor. He enunciates carefully to someone over his radio. Do you have a minute for a little story? Cecil and I exchange looks. Little story appears to be code for a little problem down at the North Gate. Yes, I have a gentleman from the village and his uh, daughter here asking if they can tour the site. We can't hear the response, but he bends back down to face Cecil. Sorry, sir, no one is allowed in without an escort. They require people to set up appointments to visit the site. Cecil pauses, always with good effect. That's a good idea. We should have done that a long time ago. Set up appointments to visit. Irony is lost on corporations and our friend at the gate who directs us to the supervisor's office. As I turn the car around, Cecil comments on how polite the boy had been about the little problem. There are three LNG projects proposed for Kitimat, the $40 billion Shell Canada LNG Canada, $3.5 billion Chevron Corporation Kitimat LNG just outside of Kitimat, and a smaller project 
a floating terminal cedar LNG proposed by the Heisla. Ellis Ross, son of Cecil's friend Russell Ross, with whom he went through Alberni Residential School, has spearheaded the Heisla's push for LNG. Kitimat Village, May 13th, 2017. Visiting Cecil today, I just got back from a trip up the Kitlope and wanted to tell him about the thousands of scoters and western grebes that we saw at Kildala. The grebes are so striking in their elegant black and white breeding plumage with their long slender necks. They're also plummeting in numbers. To see a flock is like a gift. The presence means herring and herring means Chinook and Chinook means killer whales. All good news for the house of the killer whale. As I came in, I noticed the NDP signs for the candidate stashed behind Cecil's door. He hadn't put out NDP signs as usual, out of respect for his old friend, Russell Ross. Russell's son, Ellis, was running as a BC Liberal, pro-LNG. Ellis Ross won the urban ridings, but not the villages. Cecil told me Nathan Cullen, the federal NDP MP, had dropped in for coffee the day before the election to see his old friend. I couldn't imagine navigating these kinds of confusing waters. So that's just a little snippet of a um, couple of days in the life of Cecil Paul. You you just said that you wouldn't call yourself an activist. I'm curious if Cecil would have called himself an activist. No, I don't think. In fact, we had we had sort of a conversation about it. I think activist has has become a, a kind of way of othering people it it sort of presumes that you eat chilies for breakfast and chain yourself to everything and sell your firstborn for you know it just it 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 sort of seems to dehumanize people and i i think that cecil would would like to be known as somebody who took responsibility the, the sacred responsibility for looking after his Wawais or his territory. And I would consider myself also, I have a responsibility to protect and be respectful of the Wasanich territory in which I reside. And that to, to defend it is just filling out our obligations. And, and that's something that I certainly always felt and then was so well articulated by by Cecil, by Wahid, and 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 the Hanaksla, um culture. Yeah. How did you meet Cecil? Uh, in 1981, I had returned. Um, I'd gone to Scotland to actually do a PhD on uh, grease trails, and st strangely, um, grease trails are the 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 transportation routes that people from the coast took the ulican. Ulican is a small fish, very, very full of, of omega-3 oils and was a huge trading item for a lot of the nations along the coast that had ulican rivers. And they were traded widely and taken over these mountain passes um, and traded for interior, um, you know, goods. And, and the, one of the, the important grease trails that was followed by the Scottish uh, explorer, Alex Mackenzie, as he calls himself, when you go to, to just outside of Bella Coolie, you can see on the rock, you know, Alex Mackenzie was here. 
um, he he followed the one of the grease trails down cr through the interior, through the Algacho country and down into uh, New Hawk country. And that was at the time that was called the Alexander Mackenzie Grease Trail. I mean, you know, Alexander had nothing to do with that trail other than follow it one couple over a couple of days with his um, guides, his local guides. But it was proposed as a national park, um, very similar to Long Beach, uh, the, the West Coast Trail. And that was back in the early 80s, I guess. And I was going to do a look at and sort of a feasibility study for that trail. But I met him at when I came back because he was giving a talk about, I, I had this interest obviously, and, and uh, at that time, academics connection to uh, and, and understanding and protocols around working with First Nations was not, let's put it, not highly sophisticated or <laughs> very imaginative. Is, is probably the best way I could put it. And so I think Cecil just, when I went to first hear him at, at the Provincial Museum at the time, um, I just had, you know, the scales kind of fell away from my eyes. And that started a friendship that went on for, yeah, until he died in December. Yeah. How did it, how did the, it, the process happen where you ended up collaborating on two books together? Yeah, the well, the the story. What happened is over the years when I spent time with Cecil, he would um, tell stories. We were traveling a lot. We spent a lot of time traveling. Um, I worked in the ecotourism industry as a resource person. Uh, occasionally, I'd go up spring and autumn, and I'd be traveling up in the coast. And um, whenever we got to Highland Hanaksla country, which is all that huge area south of Kitimat that he would come along on these trips. He would be the guide and the host. And we formed a friendship and I would hear the stories. And so just being a good geographer, I um, took my little recording and would record them. So over the years, I just had collected a lot of his stories and they, most stories are triggered by place. It's how oral traditions, a lot of the triggers for stories are from a place. You know, you see a place in it and it's there's an entire story that that ensues and and those can they're very varied and and for a lot of them Cecil had had created a lot of personal stories around places as well as there's there's traditional stories there's teaching stories there's um uh, stories determining ownership and responsibilities and uh he he also had his own form of personal stories so these are personal stories that really told the story of his life that were connected to a place. And because he was somebody that had traveled widely up and down the coast, a lot of it, not of his own making, um, you know, he, at the age of 10, he was, he was kidnapped and taken down to Alberni residential school. And, and thereafter for the next 30 to 40, 40 years he was traveling up and down the coast as a laborer working you know surveying for new highways or working in mines or working in canneries or you know essentially as a, a laborer 
residential schools were training uh, the children that were brought there to be cheap labor. And uh, that's indeed what he ended up doing. He was never taught to read or write. Uh, so every place that we traveled, and we've traveled from Alaska to Vancouver in boats and every place that we stopped, Cecil had a story, whether it was Buttedale and working in a cannery and the, the stories connected to that, or whether it was working up in Juneau at one of the mines or whether it was, you know, the, the stories of his home uh, in the Kitlope itself and traveling up to the, the place where he was born at a, at a place called Muscoza or so every place had a story. And I realized that this was every story that I heard. I was learning more about my history and settlers culpability of colonization because these were also areas, some of the stories that he would tell would be, I remember once we're traveling along and he pointed to this, this kind of like partially regrown area near uh, Prince Rupert. And he said, oh, that's where the Indian hospital was. And I say, Indian hospital? What's an Indian hospital? And this was, you know, in the days when we were all learning about this, and this is where people were with tuberculosis were taken and actually denied streptomycin for the longest time before they actually started to get treated. Sim similarly, you know, going to, to places like Alberni or, and, and suddenly the story starting to come with over time and friendship. The, so I, I began to see that there was an entire history of this last century of colonization and, and the implications that it had, whether it was, you know, the impacts of oil uh, pressures, like the, the LNG is the, the most recent one in that, in, in a long, long history of, of, of corporate, you know, ventures into this territory. And, and, and what, what very significantly, one of the first stories that he, I remember him telling me at his birthplace was these two very beautiful um, cedar trees that were, you know, had all the, the bark stripped for the making of baskets. And he told me the story of how these were, he remembered his, his granny um, stripping the, the bark for the, the baskets. And then he, he told me the day that he, he saw the survey markers um, wrapped around these trees and those survey markers, you know, cut deeper than knives. That's how he described them. And this, and so suddenly I realized that, and I said, you know, survey markers, it was a very important kind of symbolic um, story for him. And he, she wanted me to start the book with the story of the survey markers, because he describes how survey markers were always the very first uh, sign that um, settlers or people coming into the territory had arrived that, that they, they would they would never be asked you know hi we've come to you know survey your area for the cpr railway or the Eurocan or alcan you know all these big companies uh, they would just see survey markers and and so um the stories again these are these are the sort of triggers for stories these visual cues which would then un, uh, sort of unpack a story and and then put together as a as a collection really told the story of his life but also the story of British Columbia yeah I thought I mean listening to you talk about it now 
um, he had that clear beginning of the story, but how did you, how did you put that, how did you put it together? Like you have his stories and your journal entries, and then there's kind of also, um, oftentimes like historical context as well in there, but deciding how to put all those pieces together, I mean, it, it works beautifully, but I can't imagine it was an easy process for you to figure out how all those pieces fit. Yeah, it's, you know, it, um, it was, it was challenging. Um, <laughs> not as, I mean, you know, I think just to go back, the, the reason that Cecil wanted these stories written down and also that he wanted me to collaborate was that Cecil really sought clarity in the sense of his his real reason for wanting these stories collected is that his the collective experience of the Hanaksla people or the Heisla or the Haida or in fact any any of the First Nations I would say you, you would find this similar sentiment coming from elders is that you know First Nations have been through they've they've been through a lot and they have there is a lot to learn for us because we're we are now entering. In, to some extent, the, the the beginnings of of a life that is there's 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 an entire there's our nations of people that can tell us how you navigate epidemics or how you navigate um, difficult times or how you navigate ecological change. Some are like the the Kitlope, you know, when you have a culture that's been there for nine thousand years of right from the ice being there until present day, you've learned something, a little bit about climate change. You've learned how to adapt. You've learned, you've learned the stresses that, that, that systems um, can be put under, but how as a human being, you can lessen the stresses on a, on a situation and, less, and lessen the stresses within a society where you've actually got to get to, you've, you've actually got to get together and collaborate and and work together and bring the best of people's skill sets together because you've got to survive and we are there and and Cecil recognizes this you just go through and and look at the stories one of his stories is about many arrows came my way it it it's really going to be the the uh it's like a roll call of everything that that we are currently and will be progressively going through and so the intention of the book really was to provide some teachings and some context for why, why these stories are important. They're, 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 they are there as a gift. There is a gift to people to take and do with what they, they can and, and adapt to their current situation in, in these difficult times. He saw climate change. Um, uh, he saw climate change long before anybody who's close to land has been seeing climate change and calling it for decades and decades. He knows what happens when water becomes scarce. He knows the chaos that ensues through epidemics. He knows what happens when you have div divide and conquer tactics. This is one of the reasons why I raised the, the LNG story is as a, as a kind of the, 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 piece to read because it it places us all we we are all in these very challenging situations and Cecil was right you know 
like right up against the nub of the issue. And this is where you've got an impoverished society. They've got a gun to their head through debt and through, through you know, a century of genocide. And they're given an economic opportunity. And Cecil is saying no. And, 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 yet, and, he, and he comes up against the, the son of his very best friend who says, yes, we want this money. And he's saying no. And, and how, do you, how do you resolve these things? And I think we could all imagine that the small, and, and I think understanding too, that they, they watched how the, 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 the sort of corporate capitalist model constantly pits less powerful community, you know, groups of people against one another to fight those wars. So I'm thinking of something like Fairy Creek, if people want to understand why there is, why is there division, you know, in these small communities? Well, it's that, that is the face of colonization. You, you pit, you pit one member of the community against another, neither of which have the resources or the, none of which deserve to be pitted against one another. And, and why pit young women um, young indigenous women against, you know, n- not young non-indigenous women who are trying to to save, like the 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 degree of divisiveness that these capitalist models have created. He's been watching for over 150 years, and it's only now that's that we're really seeing some of the very ugly sides emerging in in all in in everything, whether it's our health systems or you know we've all kind of just been running along with blinkers so I think the book to to some extent the book was also about my journey of being the blinkered settler um the blinkered academic the you know living the high life um on all the proceeds I mean I come from five generations of British Columbians all of which invested and put all their investments I'm sure in timber and minerals and alcan and you know, all these companies bringing in the money and the costs, the human cost of that was never, was never, you know, we still don't, we still don't dig deep into people's pensions or stocks and say, what is it? What are the human costs of all this? Well, we're finding out and now it's hitting us. And I, and so that was really, that was his intention of the book was saying here, here's a lifetime of observation Here's a nine nine thousand years of teachings, and this is my offering to the world. And I guess the you know the beautiful offering is is a welcome. He he was welcoming everybody into the magic canoe, because we've got such a difficult journey ahead of us. Yeah. One of the the things that really struck me about the book, in addition to the stories, was the picture of the two of you on the back cover. Um, and I just thought I, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of author photos and I thought that one might be my favorite. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about that photo, if you remember what was happening when that photo was taken. Oh yeah. Well, thank you for asking that question because it was my favorite photo too. And it was taken by my son, Callum, which is even, he's a videographer. So I get to plug, he did a lot of, he, well, I'll tell you the story because it's a beautiful story. So that was in the um, West End Cafe in uh, Prince Rupert. And Prince Rupert, uh, he spent a lot of time fishing, you know, being a fishing hand, like a 
fishermen in the for our fish boats, um, as you know, a lot of laborers did in those days. Um, and in in Rupert, the racism was so bad that there was actually race riots in the I think it was in the late fifties. The, the, it was there was segregation. His first time in jail was at the age of around fifteen. He had he had just got out of residential school. He had arrived. Uh, one of the fish boats had picked him up, and he was washing dishes in a fish boat. Got dropped off at Rupert, and he decides, "Oh, I'm going to go to a movie." And he 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 sits down, and the the young woman who is the, the whatever the lady says, um, "Sorry, but you can't sit here. This is the white section. Going to go over to the Indian section." And he goes, "Well, I paid the same amount of money as the whites." And she goes, "I'm sorry." And the next thing he knew, he was. The policeman arrived and he was marched off to prison. That story is called the baptism of, of jails. That actually triggered a whole series of visits by the Native Brotherhood. One of his uncles was in the Native Brotherhood. They were a, a group of First Nation elders and leaders trying to negotiate for better conditions for First Nations. And the segregation was one of those things in the, this whole incidence of arresting people putting them in jail just for trying to attend a movie. Well, so so Prince Rupert was a very hostile place to be if you were, uh, you know, if you were an Indian in Prince Rupert in the 50s, not much fun. So the only place that he could go either to get a little bit to eat was to go to the Chinese restaurants where there was a tolerance for the First Nations, and he used to go in and clean dishes there in return to get some food. And the thing is, is that before I met Cecil, I had no idea that there was that kind of discrimination in restaurants. I had no idea until I started going with him to restaurants, and we'd sit in a restaurant, and I'd see all these people looking at him, and he'd say, see, I don't want a beer. I just want to go to the restaurants I know. Because I would say, let's go to this restaurant. We can go and have, you know, I can remember some of the stories were like, oh, let's go have an avocado sandwich, you know, some little kind of yuppie white girl from Victoria. So, you know, I, I think that I'm not, you know, dissimilar from a lot of my cohort about being completely oblivious to white privilege, entitlement, the racism endemic everywhere until I was really spending a lot of time with Cecil and then realizing, oh, right, this is this is a different reality. So anyway, the West End restaurant was where we always went. And there was a lovely, there's a lovely waitress there. I believe her name is Pansy. I'd have to just check. And she'd been working in that restaurant for 30 years. Cecil had been going back and forth to that restaurant for 30 years. And she knew exactly what he had in his coffee. It was like three sugars and, you know, milk. And she'd see him and, hey, Cecil. And I just walked into this world, this other world, you know, like my world and Cecil's world and Pansy's world and this incredible coastal connection. So we're in the restaurant one day and, you know, I was always getting on to Cecil about his diet because he's ate too much sugar. He was a diabetic. You know, I was trying to get him to eat you know, healthier food, the usual kind of, I'd call it the sort of uh, the do-gooder white lady, you know, I could have, I could have been straight off a boat from the white 
the Anglican Women's Missionary Society. I mean, that's where my roots come from. So it's ironic that, you know, my my grandfather was an Anglican missionary. And and so I, I could easily fall into this little role of missionizing away. And, and we made just like this bizarre, odd couple, but we had so much fun. We just could laugh about each other all the time. So anyway, I was saying, I don't know if this red jello is really what you should be eating, Cecil, because, you know, you do have diabetes and I want you to eat better. And he's like, no, I want to eat the red jello. <laughs> so we're laughing about the red jello. If you look carefully at the photograph. And, and my son, Callum, um, so I bring my kids along and, and Callum, um, I said to him, uh, Cecil, I would really love it for the book to have some photographs of you. So I'd like to bring Callum along and we'll just travel for a week. And he's going to bring his video and his camera. And are you okay? And he goes, yeah, but I'll just tell you when I, you know. I don't want to be videoed except when I say, okay. So he was not, he wasn't too bad for the, um, the stills and the cover of the book. You can see that's one of Callum's photos. It's a beautiful photo. It's, it's, it, 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 it speaks to the love that my kids developed for Cecil because they lost their granddad pretty early. Cecil, um, Cecil filled that role of, and, and set, a standard of um I'm gonna cry because I really miss them I think we all miss them uh it just speaks to the fact that there was a trust there and and I want to just speak about trust why Cecil should have trusted me on anything I have no idea I mean literally my great-great-grandfather was in the BC legislature enacting pieces of legislation that would make his life and his people's next century a misery and the repeat and, and betrayal that have gone on just used to take my breath away I, was like, I have no idea why you even want to speak to me like why would you have any why didn't you just murder us all in your beds I mean uh, in our beds but um so that forgiveness and trust the ability to forgive again is part of you know, Hanaksla ability to recognize that, well, we are related, you know, cares and skin, whatever. But I think also that for him, a lot of that, the, the, there was healing in that relationship. So there was a lot of reciprocity in it. And he recognized that there was reciprocity and that, and, and he was teaching me reciprocity and so the we the week that Callum came up to do the videos, he he had said, "No, I don't think I want to have any video film. I'm not too comfortable with it." And it just didn't, never seemed the right moment. And there was like one or two little bits of here, and then suddenly, we were all packed. We were about to go head home. Literally, this you know our backpacks are packed. We're having our last cup of coffee, and he goes okay, I'm ready now to do a video. <laughs> and, and Callum looks at me with sort of panic in his eyes. And I said, and so he just, he had his camera and he just set it on the, on the kitchen table and pushed the button and was like, oh, well, here we go. We got seven minutes before <laughs> we have to leave. And, um, 
And Cecil gave this absolutely beautiful video, which I maybe you can play in the um, it's it's online. It's next to the website and the and it's really about him talking about it. He says what you know, he says everything that needs to be said and that, you know, I spent three hundred and sixty eight pages of Western blah, blah, blah. Um, but that was the, that was the, in, in the same spirit, when you talk about that photograph, it was delivered in the same spirit. It was really, it was really a gift to the, to us and to his family. I know that Cecilia, his daughter and Cecil uh, Jr., his two remaining uh, kids, you know, have, uh, have something of him. And uh, I think he knew, even though he didn't like being photographed, it, it was a little gift that he could leave behind for all of us. When I first heard about it, I tried to talk to a really good friend who was a scientist. He eh? said, what's the difference between oil and natural gas? Should two pipelines go down to my country. Which one would I oppose most? And he asked me, which one would you oppose? I said, I will definitely not agree pipeline of oil. But undecided of what natural gas does, I do not know nothing about natural gas. And he told me, he said, oil, he said, it will sink in the bottom of the river or the ocean. Natural gas will evaporate in the air. So there's less damage with a pipeline of natural gas. Less damage, less damage. And they told me, I don't know, what you said about that 200 and something they gave us for LNG. Gift, they say. They're buying us out. They buy you before that money, then to go and see you mention how beautiful the spring salmon is running today. If we allow the oil to come in, the garden is destroyed, all for that mighty dollar. And we are so blinded with that dollar we agree on. Yeah. How do we tell our people? Stop for a moment, think about our garden. And that was my journey all the way through. And a lot of them opposed my way of thinking, but I go home sometimes, I sit in quietness, great spirit, what is it? Great spirit, tell them put something in here for my people. Thanks so much to Bryony for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks, as always, to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you'd like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Dan Barrell, whose book, Just Beyond the Very, Very Far North, is a finalist for the 2021 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.